Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome listeners to Stories, Fables, Ghostly Tales. And it being a Friday, it's time for some creepy stories. In this episode, I have two Let's Not Meet stories involving an almost abduction and a best friend turned worst enemy, alongside an account of a family member stealing from the family, with the last story being a fictional horror story involving the undead. Listeners, today is a jam-packed episode, and I want to specifically thank the two Let's Not Meet users that provided me their stories to share with you all. Thank you both very, very much. Names are, of course, anonymous. Now, this episode is explicit, not for little ears at all. There's swearing, explicit content like gore for the last episode, so keep this one away from little ears. <laughs> now, turn the lights off, the sound up, and let's listen to some harrowing tales. I'm convinced my childhood best friend was a sociopath. I was in a toxic, borderline abusive friendship with a girl from the ages of 9 to 12. Here's some background information to give you a little understanding as to what my life was like back in the late 2000s, early 2010s. I grew up in a very tumultuous household. My parents hated each other, and my extended family, along with my immediate, were plagued by mental illness and drug addiction. So, needless to say... I was a very anxious child, who was drawn to unstable people, and suffices to say, they were drawn to me. I was a shy, 11-year-old girl, who like many others before me, used the internet as a way to vent my frustrations and anger about my home life. This was the time where AOL was the main source of communication used between friends, and I was no stranger to this along with MySpace and Facebook. However, I wasn't like the typical pre-teens of this era, or so I thought. I kept my profile private, never accepted a follow or friend request that I didn't know, and never shared my location on these said profiles. This is the part where I introduce Tanya. Tanya isn't her name of course, as I don't want to use her real name in case she just so happens to read this thread, watches the YouTube channel or listens to the podcast. So, we'll just call her Tanya. Tanya and I met in elementary school, one of the points in my life where my family situation was quite volatile, and in retrospect, I think she sensed this. I was vulnerable, and Tanya took advantage of my innocence. She never really displayed any signs of her true intentions in the beginning, as they never usually do. She would do shady things every now and again, manipulate me into begging my mum to stay on the computer until the wee hours of the morning so we could go on not-safe-for-work websites, ghost me when I didn't give her my favourite pen, or yell at me when I couldn't perfect a guitar solo on Guitar Hero. She did some other things to me that I believe my brain blocked out due to trauma. My mum didn't like her either. Parents always have a weird intuition when it comes to friends, and I wish to God I would have listened to my mum before Tanya did what she did to me. Tanya's behaviour changed for the worse when we turned 11. Tanya was openly jealous of my success in school. Granted, she was incredibly smart herself, but she always made it a point to mock me for having great grades and would always comment that since I was pretty enough, having good grades would be a nice balance. 
Nice, right? It took me a while to build my self-esteem up after all the snide remarks she would make about my weight and my face, and only now, as a 22-year-old, do I think that I'm beautiful and have a wonderful figure. Anyways, back to Tanya. As a result of her jealousy and growing resentment towards me, she began to plot my downfall. I make no exaggeration either. This girl literally tried to ruin my self-worth even more than she already had. It started in sixth grade. Tanya and I were remarkably close that year, and I wanted to do everything with her. We would talk all day in school, and we would chat all night on AIM. On one particular evening, Tanya and I were talking about boys. Being that we were hormonal preteens, our conversations would usually turn onto who we liked in school that day. Being that I had a horrible relationship with my father, I didn't really trust boys, even from an early age so it was rare if I developed a crush on one. I remember Tanya and I's conversation going a little something like this. Tanya, do you know Mark? Me? The kid in my class? Yeah, why? Tanya, I heard he likes you. Me? What? No way. Tanya, totally, he told me. You want me to talk to him and give him your username? Me? Yeah, of course. Oh my god, thank you, Tanya. My heart was racing. A boy liked me. Impossible. When Tanya told me that she would give Mark my username for AIM, I nearly exploded in my seat. Eleven-year-old me couldn't believe I was going to have my first real boyfriend. How wrong I was. Fast forward to the next night. I was getting ready for bed when I heard the famous AOL ding sound off on my iPod Touch. You know the sound I'm talking about. When I checked the notification, it was a message from MarkyBoy99. I don't remember his username, so we'll just go with something like this. I turned red. Tanya had really talked to Mark and gave him my user. She was truly the best. He messaged me with the usual, Hey! Emphasizing on the three Ys, and I responded, Hey! I didn't want to come off as desperate, so I only used one Y. Not even one minute later, he messaged me back. We talked all night about everything. Our days, how school was, what type of silly band we liked. Typical 11-year-old stuff. I have to admit, I was smitten right off the bat. I think it was partly because I never really had a boy like me before, and the other part being that my self-esteem was so low that I never thought a boy would be capable of liking me. Also, it could have been because Mark was one of the most popular boys in school at that time. He played football, was mouthy to the teachers, and was extremely outgoing. All the things a young girl would be attracted to. We talked for months. My puppy love growing for him more and more every time we chatted. Of course, I never spoke to him on the phone, nor did I get his phone number, because why would you do that, right? All the while I was speaking to him, Tanya would be gassing me up telling me how proud she was of me and that I deserved a boyfriend. My suspicions of Mark only began to grow when I attempted to approach him during school hours. Again, I had anxiety, so I would never really speak to Mark outside of AIM. When I went to talk to him, Mark looked confused, as if he's never had a conversation with me before in his life, and walked to be with his other friends. Huh. Weird. This wasn't like him. He was usually so chatty with me online that I expected him to welcome me with open arms in person. 
My ego was bruised. My little 11-year-old mind tried to rationalize this behavior by chalking it up to him, not wanting to talk to the nerd since he was so popular and that he just preferred to keep our relationship online. I told Tanya the news and she seemed to be genuinely heartbroken for me. She was just as angry as I was and vowed to confront Mark later that day, during music class. I was happy. Tanya had my back. And as far as I knew, she was going to tell Mark off about him being a total jerk to me. Well, it worked. Later that night, I got a message from Mark, telling me how sorry he was for ignoring me, and that he was just going through some family things. Back in love, I was. I didn't care that Mark ignored me during school, I didn't care that he rejected my advances in person. As long as I had him to talk to online, and Tanya's support, I was fine. I even told mum about him, and she was extremely happy for me as well. Another month passed, and it was March 31st, 2011. Mark messaged me, and told me that he had something very important to tell me the next day. The anxiety began. What was it? What did he have to tell me? At that point, I considered myself and Mark to be dating, so I was anxious that he was either going to break it off with me, or that he was going to make us public in school the next day. I told my mum and Tanya, almost on the verge of tears with how excited and nervous I was. Well, the next day, April 1st, 2011 rolled around, and this is what followed. It was around 7pm, and I was on Club Penguin, as I usually was until I heard a familiar ding. It was Mark. It was time for the news I'd been waiting for all day. Mark. Hey babe. Winking face emoticon. Me. Oh my god, hey! I've been waiting for you to chat to me all night. Mark. Sorry babe, I was at practice. Upset emoticon. Are you ready for the news? I was shaking with anticipation at this point. Even writing this now. A whole swell of emotions are resurfacing. Me. Yes, of course. It was then that Mark sent me a picture. I opened it, but only it wasn't Mark. It was Tanya, and she was holding a handwritten sign that said, Happy April Fool's Day. At first, I started laughing. And I mean, it was an ugly laugh. Of course, it was a prank. Tanya had gotten me so good, right? Right? Well, wrong. It was then when the realization hit me that I started to sob. I felt betrayed and like a loser. Tanya had been behind Mark all along, and she had been planning this big joke since October of 2010. She had been so jealous that she pretended to be someone else and string along my emotions when she knew I was already in a rough place mentally. She told me that I was stupid to even think that Mark would even like me in the first place, and that I was dumb for not asking for his number. Tanya had been at this for six months. An 11-year-old girl plotted Mark, used him to make me think that a boy liked me, and tricked me into believing that I had a boyfriend all the while telling me when we hung out that she was happy for me, and that Mark and I were a cute couple. I told my mum, who then called her mum. My mother was livid, to say the least. She told Tanya's mum to tell her daughter never to speak to me again. 
I was crushed. My best friend of three years had catfished me because she simply wanted to play a joke. I was loyal to her and she toyed with my emotions because she could. Tanya had tried multiple times to guilt trip me into being her friend again in the month that followed leading into seventh grade. One of the more memorable and honestly messed up times being when she messaged me a few days after my birthday in August to tell me that her mother had just died in a horrible car crash. Her body was dismembered and they could only find her head and wedding ring. As anyone would be, I was in tears. Tanya's mother was nothing but lovely to me and learning that she died in such a violent way crushed my soul. I started talking to Tanya again, asking her when her mother's funeral would be. Tanya then revealed to me seconds later, after speaking to her about the grisly details of her mother's passing, that she was kidding, and was pranking me again and that I was stupid to believe her. She even sent a video of her laughing at me. I was disgusted. Who would even say something like that? What now 12-year-old would message someone that their mother was dismembered in a car crash? She then revealed her ugly and, quite frankly, evil intentions when we were at the beginning of 7th grade, and she became friends with a girl named Kaylee. They both invited me to sit with me at their lunch table, and because I was desperate for friends, I stupidly accepted, only to be met with hordes of insults and laughter behind my back every chance I wasn't looking. Tanya then messaged me one night telling me to kill myself and that the world would be a better place without me in it. She had Kaylee tell me to go jump off a bridge. Tanya told me that she hated me and was never really my friend to begin with. That I deserved all of the pain she put me through the year prior. I again told my mum, who then called the police. She had had enough of Tanya And so had I. For four years, I had put up with Tanya's malicious behavior, and I just couldn't handle it anymore. My mum made me delete my AIM account, and Tanya's mum told her to never contact me again or else. My my mum also advised me to move lunch tables, but I was hell-bent on not letting Tanya win. For the entirety of seventh grade, I sat at the same table as Tanya. Only I spoke to my friends, at the other side of the table. I never spoke to her, looked at her, or gave her any sort of attention. Kylie was scared to death of me afterward too, as the police had gotten in contact with her family as well. It's been 10 years, and I still haven't spoken to Tanya. I am now 22 years old, have two bachelor's degrees, one in psychology and the other in history, and I am now working towards my master's in clinical social work. Tanya did other things to me too, that I could write a whole other story about, but I think writing this one helped give me closure on the part of my childhood that scarred me for years. I thank God for my mum stepping in when she did because I don't know where I would be without her. As for Tanya, I don't know where she is or what she's doing, and i really rather not. On the off chance she stumbles upon this story, I have a message for her. Your jealousy and wishes for death upon me did not win, and I truly hope that karma does not come around one day to bite you in the ass. Tanya, let's never meet again. I'm confident I would have become a missing persons case. 
To better paint the picture, here is the description of myself at the time of this incident, three years ago. 5'5", 26-year-old woman, medium length, bleached blonde hair, curvy, 175 pounds, wearing black high-waisted tights, and a pink crop top. Three years ago, I was walking home late at night from my friend's house. It was dark at the time. I lived in a rough part of a large city. I've had many sketchy situations that I've gotten myself out of, so I guess I felt sort of invincible, like nothing truly scary could happen to me. When I walk alone, I always stay very alert and aware of my surroundings, for my own safety just in case. About halfway home and roughly ten minutes to my apartment, I noticed a van started tailing me. I was used to this since in my city, it's very common for a young woman in a rough area to get propositioned for sex. It's embarrassing how desensitized to this I was. I did my usual and crossed the road so that I would be walking beside the traffic heading in the other direction. I wasn't scared, just annoyed. The van then turned down a side street, then back onto the road I was on and pulled up to me. At this point, I still wasn't scared. Again, this has happened so many times, and it never mattered if I was wearing something that showed more skin or if I was wearing a winter coat zipped from just below my chin all the way down to my ankles. That area is notorious for that type of activity. I decided to be firm and told the person sternly, I'm not interested. I noticed there were two men in the van. They looked almost identical and may have been twins or brothers. Both men had a very, very dark complexion, dark eyes and short dark hair. The van didn't move. I was super annoyed and crossed the road again to get away. At this point, I figured this would be enough for them to stop following me. They didn't. They kept circling back every time I crossed the road. I've never had to put that much effort into getting a horny pervert to leave me alone. So this is when I started feeling unsafe. They zipped by me at the speed the traffic was flowing in, and I yelled for them to fuck off. I thought it finally worked. It had been three minutes and I hadn't seen the van, so I thought I was in the clear. Just in case, I pulled my phone out and was getting ready to call my sister that I lived with. Just then, the van pulled up to me very quickly, and before I could even blink, one of the men jumped out of the van, opened the back door, and approached me quickly in an aggressive manner, as if he was about to scoop me up and throw me into the vehicle. The traffic in that area is very inconsistent. It was dead, and I imagined that that was what they were waiting for. Just as the man was about to place his hands on me, I tilted my phone and said, You are being filmed in my live video chat. I gave my friends your license plate number and the police have been notified. I was so scared. But I didn't let that show. I stayed as calm as I could. The man paused like he was considering if I was bluffing or telling the truth. So I tilted the phone more as if to give the fake audience a better look at him. He then jumped into the van and they sped off. I have never been the same since that night. I am afraid of walking alone now, even in the daytime. Stay safe out there. Two creeps in a van, let's not ever meet. I hope karma finds you both soon. Sister demands for payment, even though she gets near 500 US dollars without working per month and steals from our mum. I know the title may sound kind of weird, but let me explain it to you. 
In my family, we are four members at the moment. My big brother, who works as an animator and is a little older than 25 years old and is moving out in a few days. Myself, who is less than 20 years old, who is not working but studying. My mum, who works for herself, doing overalls for kindergarten teachers and children. And finally, my sister, who is almost in her 30s and is working with my mum and is studying fashion and how to make clothes. With this little introduction, let's begin. My sister at the age of 19 started studying as an accountant and went with it for at least six years in a free college where my mum would have to buy her books and give her some money for taking the bus to the college. When she was near 25 years old, she one day randomly said, I don't want to study this anymore, and just stopped going and kept going to that college. She was in less than a year of ending the course She was in less than a year of ending the course and getting the degree. After that, she begged my mum about paying her for this new separate course that at the moment was costing at least 207 US dollars a month. My mum at the moment was earning near 1,000 a month. My mum somehow agreed. When I became 17, I finished high school and I was able to choose a college. I picked one that was 100 US dollars with all included materials, uniform, and it would even give me a chance to work in some foreign countries. After two months, my mum asked to have a chat with me and told me, we're going through a rough time with money, and I decided that I'm not going to pay for your college anymore. I was devastated and angry, but I understood. If she didn't have the money, there was nothing I could do about it, except work, but in my country it's kind of hard to find a job as a minor, plus I have scoliosis, so I'm kind of fucked in that. But my mum kept paying my sister's college. When I found that out, I got pissed. And there was this huge argument in my house because if there was no money, how were they paying my sister's college fees, who at the moment was 25, 26? Like, the fuck? And I forgot to mention that she needed to pay other things and not only college. Models, someone who would take photos of her clothing, people who would sew her clothes for her, etc, etc. And it would end up being like 500 US dollars sometimes. My sister was working with my mom and that's why they were okay with paying her college. But she wouldn't attend phone calls or even would just work one hour a day with mom. Meanwhile, she was not doing almost anything since then. She would pay people to do her duties in college and not work. I couldn't go to college though for the whole year. Fast forward to the next year. Now, I'm finally able to go to college because my dad is paying for it. Meanwhile, my mum is still paying for my sister's everything. A few months ago, I saw my mum crying and asked what happened. Then she explained to me that she lost near 1,000 US dollars and can't understand how. She explained that she has two bank accounts, the personal one and her works one. This second one is where all the work money goes when people pay for her stuff. And then she realized there is only one other person who knows that account detail. My sister. At that moment, my sister was not home. So my mum went to her room and found $300 in cash. And it was fucking suspicious since my mum never gave her that money. When she confronted my sister about it, she said something like, oh yeah, my boyfriend gifted that to me. (laughs) And my mum was so devastated that she just said, Okay, and did not want to argue or kick her out. My sister now is saying to my mum that she wants her payment for all these years that she didn't get money 
she didn't get the money because it went for her college and all the shit she was paying for. Now, today it happened again. My sister has mysterious boxes that cost near $10 each. Near 10 boxes and no real job. And she keeps asking my mum for money because she doesn't get paid. I skipped some details, but I would be more than glad to answer any questions. But that's all for now. Also, I think the main problem is that she's almost in her 30s and she's not actually working and is still getting everything paid for her. It's ungrateful as fuck. And let's not forget that it seems like she's stealing from our own mother. And that's where this account ends. AC130U, Scorpio, Log 3. This is the log of AC130U06 Scorpio. To start off, we've had two crew overhauls in the last three days. Moriarty has been promoted to captain instantaneously and given command of the craft. He has had a rough time, but he's going to have to pull himself together for this op. His younger brother was killed down on the ground yesterday. The guy was a seal. Complete overhaul because of what happened with Team 1. We are renaming the mission, Operation Sterilization, rather than Cleanup. According to them, Cleanup seemed more colloquial and casual, or at least, that's what they told us. Sterilization was more direct, more formal sounding. It was the original name for the operators going in, and as far as we know, SEAL Team 3's troops were slaughtered, fire teams scattered and broken up, and they've sent in the Marines in a direct engagement operation. The mission still remains the same, we watch the perimeter, and keep infected inside the quarantine zone. I have begun to question this mission in the first three days. I've seen a lot, and done a lot. Shit ain't right. Captain Moriarty is still telling me we're heading in, due to new protocols. The only people carrying sidearms on board the plane are the captain and the communications officer. If we go down, we have a weapons locker. Nobody carries inside the plane until an emergency situation where we must evacuate and defend ourselves. He has told me he wants me to include a more in-depth personal log format. I'll do so to the best of my abilities. This time, we're going to remain in the air for two days along with a second gunship in the air. They've taken over a small airstrip down in the city and using it as a makeshift firebase and command center. Place is a fortress now. We've been told to be on the lookout for special infected mutant types. These things are supposed to be horrific, distorted, and very deadly infected. Somehow reacting to the virus based on body conditions at the time of the infection. This is the log as follows. The first 17, 2017. 12.30. Leaving the runway one more time. 13 o'clock. Nothing as of yet. Combs are coming on now. We're getting warned that the place is going to be a blitz when we arrive. Hordes of infected are reaching the third perimeter, and the gunships on patrol currently are running dry. So are the AHs. 1325. We've made it to the area, and there are hordes of infected down there. We've been cleared to engage. A large mass of an estimated 300 infected already reaching third perimeter. Estimated 50 plus infected beginning to breach barricade. Special infected encountered. Describing as large female infected, gaping womb, second set of arms, second head. Body is distorted and decomposing. Creature emerging from womb, very hostile. Ripping fellow men apart. 1330. Clear hit on target with 40mm BOFORS cannon. Still combat effective though and beginning to breach perimeter. Hit with a second volley of rounds, still standing. 
125mm howitzer used on entire area. Target appears to have died, along with 13 plus infected confirmed killed in action. 125mm reloaded. 1332. 125mm used on large mass of multiple hundred infected. Dispatched groups effectively. Runners reaching fifth perimeter. Barricade breached, according to ground team two. 1333. Firing at gate with 40mm to eliminate large groups of infected moving through the gate. Gate has allowed the narrow, the wide formation of infected, making it easier to target and wipe out the 40mm. Ground runs red with blood and guts, quite a sight. 1335. Infected still breaching. Team 2 is able to hold their ground with help from AH-64s. Luckily, no special infected encountered. Command breaks line, informs AC-130U-06 to get our asses in gear and eliminate the formation. 1340. All infected eliminated. Still more arriving from city. Estimated 450 plus kills. Estimated 250 plus leaving first perimeter. Readying for second wave. Team 2 struggles to create a makeshift barricade out of APCs, Abram tanks, and Humvees. 1345. Infected reaching second perimeter. First formation cleared with 125mm comms have opened. First MEF commander has let us know they are encountering heavy resistance inside the city. It was broadcast on all channels. The city has it worse than us, but the president and congress refused to let us fire upon the city with heavy ordnance, getting too personal for the logs, engaging groups of infected. 1347. Eric Maxson reports the 40mm gun has jammed. Crew Chief Second Lieutenant Peters is assisting him. We're without 40mm. We're firing the 125mm, but we don't have the in-between for smaller groups. We can't waste howitzer ammunition on smaller groups of infected. 1400. Command demands to know why more and more infected are breaching the barricade. This really doesn't look good. Peter has fixed the gun. We're unloading round after round now into crowds of infected. 1425. They just keep coming. The ground is a dark shade of red. We're circling again, and firing more 125mm howitzer rounds. 1430. Moriarty warns the crew that we may have to rearm. I now see what forward command was talking about. The other gunship, AC-130U-03, is running dry as well. 1435. Estimated 1,200 plus infected killed in action. Looks to be the last horde. Looks to be the last horde of infected arriving. Estimated 300 plus infected. We can do this. Team 2 informs me they're barely holding. They have lost a 15th of their unit. This is not good. 1440. Ran out of 125mm howitzer shells. On last two packs for 40mm BOFORS cannon. Estimated 125 plus infected left. Reaching 5th perimeter now. 1450. All Clear. 2,625mm round left. All other ammo depleted. Return to Firebase Alpha to rearm. Team 2 is rebuilding barricade fast. 1455. On approach to Firebase Alpha Strip, Control tells us to get back out quickly. Something's wrong. Firebase Alpha is warning us that some kind of very powerful giant infected is reaching the area. 
first line of defences lost and are retreating. 1500. We need to get back in the air now. Control warns us that the creature has breached final line of defence. Control warns us that the creature has breached final line of defence. Weaponed useless against it. Haim has an idea. We are keeping the plane on brakes but on. Readying 40mm. 1552. Creature has reached inside of airbase. Multiple casualties. Looking at the fucking size. Taxing around a position gun. Creature is heading straight for us. Readying 125mm gun. This is against protocol. It's fucking unethical. 1553. 125mm howitzer and 40mm BOFORS fire directly at the creature. Knockback is incredible. Damage is visibly dealt to creature. Creature is large, at least 7 meters tall, humanoid muscular, a pale salmon red, yellowed eyes, pulsing muscles visible, as well as large pulsing carbuncles and papules emanating blood and white liquid, most likely pus. Visible wound from shells. 125mm took off creature's arm, blood is dark yellow color. Creature is getting back up. 1555. Another round was fired. Creature successfully dispatched. Damage assessment underway. Command urges control to get us rearmed to patrol again. Control and command at disagreement right now. 1600. Being refueled and rearmed. 1620. In the air again. 1630. Distress signal from surviving SEAL Team 3. Troop 1, Platoon 1 sent out. Confirmed 5 SEALs from Platoon 1 survived. Platoon 2 dispatched to provide aid. New orders issued to SEAL Platoon 1 and 2. These orders are not heard over communications. 1700. It's been quiet. Moriarty warns that this isn't a good sign. 1730. All clear. Communications cut on SEAL Platoon 1 and 2 are encountering heavy resistance, including a creature matching the description of the one faced at Firebase Alpha. Moriarty requests permission from command to engage and provide air support. Command does not answer. 1733. Command denies request to provide support. No other air support will be dispatched as well. Moriarty makes request again. Command refuses due to executive orders. 1735. Comms open up again. Seal platoons are down to 13 men altogether. Request immediate assistance. Command denies. Fuck command. The seals need our fucking help. 1740. Moriarty motions and orders pilots to take us inside the city tells us he will accept full responsibility for this, but that this is an order, and he is a superior officer. Command orders us to immediately return to position. Communications with command are cut off at this moment by Rimmer. Seals advise to find cover. We are engaging hostiles. 1745. Targets eliminated. This special infected seems stronger than the one we encountered earlier. Hostile Op 4 spotted with RPGs. Fired RPGs. Flares deployed. Seals advised to take out hostile Op 4. 1750. Hit by RPG. Losing altitude, but stable now. Something just hit the tail of the craft. Second RPG hit. Creature is confirmed crippled, but still alive. 1753. Seals confirm all targets eliminated. Multiple sustained damages, but still in the air. Unidentified humanoid creature breaks into craft. Hull breach f 1900. Multiple crew killed. Rimmer, Maxon, Haim, Moriarty, and Weaver confirmed alive. 
All other crew dead. Weaver and Haim have sustained multiple injuries. Unknown what creature got inside. AC-130U is downed. We've taken refuge inside a building with the seals. Communications are down. Not that command would help us now. We grabbed ammunition and weapons. And we grabbed wounded. I still have our log. We're keeping quiet. Better to not use our weapons and ammo if we don't have to. We're going to move when the majority of them pass. Hopefully, make it to RV Echo, the final location that the SEALs must get to. During last communication with RV Echo, Marines have already taken refuge and are defending the area with the surviving civilians. It will be a four-mile hike, made more difficult since we will have to stay off main streets. I've been tasked with carrying the log, but recording further information with LTJG, Hudson's Journal, no point in writing two logs. This is a C-130U-06, Scorpio's crew's last official log during Operation Sterilization. AFC Rayner, Chris H. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. The first story about a best friend who turned into your worst enemy is just terrifying. I've heard cases of these in the UK, where it starts off much like our first story, to then evolve into a much more serious case where they're stalked, and even their ex-friend attempts to woo them into loving them under a false identity. Much like Mark in our first story. Check out Gemma Watts online, where a woman posed as a teenage boy on social media to sexually assault up to 50 girls. Just awful. And there were so many warning signs of this progressing into a more serious situation, so it's great that you got the police involved. And the ex-friends telling our author to kill themselves is abhorrent. That duo reminded me of the Slenderman killings with two 12-year-old girls. You can check that one out as well online. This could have easily progressed into that sort of space without intervention. Yikes. So glad you're safe. And the second story with the almost abduction. Talk about thinking on your feet. Legendary bluffing skills and a saving grace from technology. You are one lucky and resourceful person. And I'm glad you escaped out of that situation. Smart thinking, mate. Folks, thanks for listening. If you think you have some dollary dues for the cost of a cup of tea a month, you can visit my Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt, where you can be just like my new Earl Grey enforcer, Alia Arcane, and yes, an awesome last name, who has supported me at the Earl Grey Enforcer tier of $5 dues a month. Thank you so much for your support, Alia, and I'm stoked to have you on board. And on that note, I want to thank my supporters. My Ode Knight T-Titan, majestic and ever-amazing superstar, Maya. Thank you, Maya, for your top-tier Ode Knight T-Titan support. With your help, I've acquired a new set of tools that will rival professional studios out there to master, repair, and edit audio. Thanks to your amazing support on this show, I'm never short of a software package or a plugin to support the show. And furthermore, you would have heard the previous Monday episode with Old Time Radio regarding the Philip Marlowe series, and how serious of an update that was from an audio perspective where I repaired that 1940s episode. It's almost brand new. It's thanks to you, Maya, that I have this crazy top-tier software, and that all of my listeners get the benefit thanks to your generosity. I really, really, really am grateful. Thank you, Maya. You're brilliant. My white tea warlord, Lesosaurus Rexus. Mate, I hope you're doing great. Thank you so much for your support, and thanks to you, I've been using my latest plugins to master this episode and bring the life into my recordings. 
I've also scored a brand new microphone that was super cheap, from $200 down to $90 brand new. A Rode Mini USB microphone, extremely handy for recording on the go, and you never know when you'll need one as a backup. So mate, thank you so much for supporting me to make these kinds of purchases. You're a legend. And my next white tea wall, because I'm lucky to have two, Paige the Sage. Mate, thank you immensely for your support. I've been putting your dollar dues straight into subscription costs because that's where they're needed most. That means Epidemic Sound, Adobe Photoshop, and hosting is covered thanks to your support in a matter of months. Not a dollar due is wasted and I make sure of that, mate. And your support has also gone straight into the latest mic to help not only provide a backup for recording, but also a means to test new software on a different recording platform. You are epic, Paige, and never ever forget it. And now, for my amazing Earl Grey Enforcers, I'm lucky to have Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, and Alia Arcane. Thank you all, you legends. And I have a very special episode coming out to my Patreons next week. Something very different and very special, like you lot. It's not a normal episode, and I'll keep it as a surprise. Thank you for supporting me in the way you do, and I'll catch all of you, listeners and supporters, next week, mates. As always, folks, till next we meet.